sixth grade, my sister's best friend, Tamara, got very sick. She was quickly diagnosed with leukemia. I actually remember the Wednesday night, it was shared with the rest of the church. There was quite a bit of hope. I'm sorry, kids are dismissed that we worship. But I do remember the Wednesday night that it was shared that this diagnosis had come down. There was quite a bit of hope. You see, the doctors, in an unusual mood, uh, had, had told her parents that this was the most curable kind of leukemia. In fact, not long later, they found out that her brother Jared was almost a perfect match to have a bone marrow transplant. Of course, as a parent today, I couldn't imagine having to go through something like that. The transplant happened, and I remember Tamara a few weeks later visiting on an evening service at our church. And everyone was so happy to see her. I can still see her so very clearly to mind. She had a mask on. She had a bandana on, of course, because her hair was gone. But uh, everybody was so happy to see her. And a week later, she was dead. Over my time in ministry, of course, I have encountered many kinds of situations like that. And I can tell you very honestly that I am quite embarrassed by the foolish things that I said to people very early in ministry. And I can also tell you that at times I am still surprised that I struggle with what to say to people. You may not realize it, but if you stop and think this year, Six people who attend our church, who are faithfully here pretty much every Sunday, have lost a loved one. Parent, spouse, a child. And we're barely past the midway point. You add on top of that the daily reminders of death and COVID levels. Hearing on the news about the increase of murders in large cities and suicide because people are depressed. So perhaps you would not be surprised to find out over the last six months I have been inundated or asked quite a lot on the subject of death. And so my purpose this morning is to not only answer some of those questions for the larger group, But I want to do it, and hopefully in a way that will help you talk about a very difficult subject with your neighbor. The reality is, as macho as everyone he seems right now, most of your friends, most of your family, most of your neighbors are thinking a lot about their mortality. The opening chapter of the book of Revelation is really for one single purpose— And that is to make sure that the reader knows that the book of Revelation is about Jesus. It is a book about Jesus that contains last things, but the book is about the last Adam. Chapter 1, right before our text, we get a number of verses that contain symbols for glory that you find all over the Old Testament. One of those, for example, is describing Christ as having a head of white hair. In the book of Proverbs, the white-haired is considered the crown of glory. Sorry for those of you who don't have any hair. But the idea was that these symbols are stacked on top of each other to explain why, when Jesus appeared, John falls down as dead. 
You see, John had seen the risen Jesus before, but that was before Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us when he ascended into heaven, there he received his robes, there he received his crown, there he was given a name above all other names. And now John sees him in his full glory, and he falls down as dead. What I want you to note here in verses 17 and 18 is how Jesus describes himself, not how John describes him. And he gives us three descriptions. I am the first and the last. I am the one that lived and died and lived again. I am the one who holds the keys of hell and of death. And these reasons contextually are why Jesus says to John, do not fear. Don't be afraid, John, because these things are true of me. And I want to take these two verses and these describers, and I want to give you encouragements so that you do not fear death. Number one, number one, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope. The first thing again, Jesus says to John, fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus is reminding John of something he's already actually stated is true. John says back in verse 8 that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. It's a doxology or a song of praise. This is a glory to Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, John, you remember when you would tell people that I was the Alpha and the Omega? Fear not, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the last. In fact, as you go through the New Testament, this is a theme that many of the apostles would pick up on. For example, the Apostle Paul in Colossians says that because Jesus is the first and the last... He is our hope, not religious rule-keeping, not religious practice. In the book of Acts, this is what would irk so many of the government leaders. Because saying that Jesus is the first and the last, meaning he is superior to Caesar. It means that he is superior than the Old Testament priesthood. It means he is superior than the temple sacrifices. And in Philippians, we're we're told that we are waiting not for events... But for him, he is everything. So what is being established in the text, why John is being told not to fear, is that Jesus is everything they have been teaching and more than they could comprehend. He is the first cause, the ultimate purpose. He is the sum total of everything. And so for the Christian, we do not fear, but hope. Jesus is going to say to John, one day I'm going to set into motion series of events that are going to be absolutely terrifying. I'm going to talk over the course of Revelation. Jesus is going to talk and John's going to see a lot of death. But Jesus is going to remain and continue to be the object of hope. It will not be an event like the rapture. It will not even be the promise of life after death. He is our hope. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible reminds us that every human that has ever lived lives with the inescapable reality of death. The reality is described in Hebrews chapter 2 as being a form of torment. Perhaps not since the Cold War when many of our parents and grandparents hid underneath their desks at school because of the fear of a nuclear attack have people been so mindful of this torment? 
I want you to note, again, the Bible describes the reality of death in Hebrews 2 as a farm of torment. Meaning, knowing that you are going to die is, for most people, a torment. But I want you to know the contrast of what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say that death is sad. You see, because if death was the end of everything, if it was the end of our family or our friends or pleasures, then it would just be sad. Like the last episode of the last season of your favorite TV show or the last book in a series or the end of a great summer. It would just be sad. But the Bible doesn't describe the reality of death as sad. It calls it a torment. Because we have inside of us a knowledge of knowing that death is not the end, that what waits for us is a face-to-face with God. That's the torment. And this reality of death enslaves us, as the Bible puts it. The fact that we know that it's coming scares us. And so we'll respond, for example, of denying it even there. We'll, for example, respond by saying, you know what, I'm not afraid of it when you really are. Some run to, to, uh, to, to pleasures and addictions and say, you know what, I'm going to block it out of my mind. Others grow more and more anxious. You see, that's what the Bible calls it. You, you become enslaved to this terror. It defines, it tells you what you are going to do. But Jesus is described as the one who delivers us from the torment. His blood makes us right with God. So there's no terror about meeting him. He sets us free from having our decisions enslaved to death's reality. In this way, Jesus disarms the enemy. He can't accuse us anymore before the Lord because Christ has made us clean. He can no longer wave death in front of us to scare us because Christ has taken away its sting. So not only do we learn that death is not the end of family and friends and pleasure... In fact, what the Bible tells us is that life that awaits us after death contains significantly more of those things than they do in this life. And all of it will be ours because Christ is our hope. Leads me to number two. Number two, resurrection is our future. Resurrection is our future. Jesus says to John here, I am he that lived, was dead, and now alive forevermore. This also was a major theme for the apostles. The fact that Jesus rose again, that he was dead and was then alive, was the primary defense as to why people should believe in him. They should put their faith in Christ because this being dead and coming back was proof that he was, in fact, Lord. The apostles showed this this resurrection of Christ as the central truth of life, meaning it changes the definition, it changes how history now unfolds. The resurrection is described as the sun beginning to rise on our day of resurrection. And it has so many ramifications. For example, in 1 Corinthians, the fact that we will be resurrected actually increases, not decreases, the importance of of life. See, your physical body is going to die, but it's not going to simply be tossed aside. It will be resurrected. We see in Revelation, creation itself, although we will die, will not be set aside, but in fact, resurrected. And what we find out is because of resurrection, we know that God values physical life. 
In Luke 16 and later in the book of Revelation, resurrection means that life after death contains an intermediate state. Meaning the life immediately after death is not our final state. The Bible teaches that when a Christian dies, they are immediately with Christ in a disembodied state. The unbeliever is immediately separated from Christ in a disembodied state. We typically use that term as heaven and hell. But our future is not heaven. After heaven comes an eternal state of fellowship between a resurrected disciple, that you and me, and a risen Lord. And the last ramification of the resurrection is that that in our future, we will always be who we are. One of the things we see in several moments in Revelation is that the dead know who they are. The dead know what they have done. The dead know what has been done to them. And the dead knows what has been done for them. Worship is done by a large crowd that can be identified as coming from certain ethnic groups from different parts of the world. So when the Bible says that he's going to wipe away all of your tears, it's not saying you're going to forget. It's saying that all of your pain, all of your struggle, all of your suffering will be redeemed. It'll be changed. And when we are resurrected, it will become reasons for worship. We have every reason to believe we will not only know each other, but we will in fact know everyone. And we will come to know every reason they have to praise the Lord, which was why when we find that scene in heaven, there is praise after praise after praise. Can you imagine millions and millions upon millions of people sharing their reason why they are praising the Lord? And imagine then why it's going to last for a very long time. Certainly the fact of the resurrection is a source of comfort for those who are currently face to face with death. But what about the young and the healthy? As I said, resurrection means that life is important, which means as Christians, we are not simply pro-life on the subject of abortion. We are pro-art. We are pro-science and medicine. We are pro-enjoying food. We are pro-athletics. We are pro-going to war for freedom. We are pro-equal justice. We embrace life in every way, in every form it takes. We treat our animals with care and respect. We plant gardens to grow tomatoes to put on pizza and meatballs. We are conservatives and explorers and stargazers. We find faster ways to do our laundry and keep our food cold and mop our floors. You know why parents and teachers and communities are bonking heads about whether or not they should have masks at school. Because they're both reaching for the belief that education is important. And you know why you're bonking heads with other Christians over the issue of masks? Because you both are reaching for the truth that life is important. I know many of you have faced some tough stuff over the last five months. Some of these things might get corrected. Some of those things might change. Some of them might get better. But many of those things may not. And the Bible tells us we should pray for justice, for wrongs against us. The Bible tells us to pray for the job and the finances we need to live. The Bible tells us we should ask for his peace in our troubled hearts. And some of those prayers are going to get answered today. Some of them are going to get answered in a few moments later time. But because of our future in Christ, what we know because of resurrection is that they will all be answered. And they will all be yes. 
In the every moment of suffering and every fear and every trouble become a reason for us to say to the Lord, you are worthy to be praised. Leads me to number three. Death is not our problem. Death is not our problem. Lastly, Jesus says to John here in verse 18, I have the keys of hell and of death. More literally, the, tra- the text could be translated, I have the keys of death and of death. And I want you to know something very subtle here. You can see it right there in your plain English Bible. The phrase is not the keys to death and hell, but the phrase there is the, the keys of death and hell. The grammar there is possessive. You say, Pastor, why are you even bringing that up? Because these keys used to belong to death and hell. And what Jesus is saying is a statement of lordship or sovereignty. Think of it this way. I have a key to my van. If you came to my house and stole the key to my van, you now have the key to my van. You now can control my van. And so what Jesus is saying is I now have control over the first and the second death. So the Bible is clear that both of these keys used to belong to the enemy. But they don't anymore. The fact that Jesus has the keys to physical death is why he is declared as having the power to raise you from the dead. And it is why he has the ability to permanently destroy physical death. Later, death is cast. You see at the end of Revelation, death is cast into the lake of fire where it remains for all of eternity. Sorry for the picture, but the immediate image came in my mind of Frodo throwing the ring into Mount Doom and having been destroyed. It's power never to be unleashed again. We do not need to be afraid of death because our master holds the key. The fact that Jesus has the key to the second death is why you know that you will not be cast out. You will never be separated. We say that when you come to faith in Christ, eternal life starts the moment of your conversion. At no point will there ever be space between you and him. He holds the key to the second death. The enemy cannot send you to the second death of eternal separation from God. You cannot send yourself to the second death of separation from God. Only he can. And he has promised for those who have put faith for salvation from the second death in him, he will never do it. You see, the question the Bible challenges challenges you with is not if you're good enough to keep yourself from the second death. The question it asks you, is Jesus a liar when he tells you you will never taste it? The the fact that our master holds the key to physical death means not only is your resurrection guaranteed, but so is the timing of your death and the death of a loved one. It means that no person ever dies before the Lord decides. It's a tough thing to swallow, but true. Nobody, not the angel, not the, not, not the enemy, not the president, not you. None of you have control over death. Christ has the key. And this is incredibly important for the way we think, especially in times like this. You see, we have Christians on one side who will say we can't be afraid, we can't live in fear. And then we have Christians on the other side who say, well, we need to shut it off all down. And I know we love our tribes, we love taking sides, because it's easy and it feels safe. And nobody likes it when the pastor gets up and says, you're both right, which I just did. 
And it's why the Bible calls us to prudence. You see, those two ideas that we should not be in fear and we should do all that we can to preserve life, they don't contrast each other. They are two lines that make up the crosshairs on your scope so that you can aim in the right place. The fact that our master holds the key to the second death means you are, in fact, eternally secure. And one of the areas that has been a help to me is that this has been a good reminder in the realm of decision-making. You see, I've had to make a few since the beginning of March. No pastor alive today, as I've said before, no pastor alive today has had to deal with all of this nonsense before. And it all starts with questions like, what should we do about church? What do we do about Awana? What do we do about picnics? What do we do about fifth quarter? And, in, and, and anybody in leadership can, 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 it needs to be careful because it can very quickly become, putting about, become about putting too much stock in making the right decision. Around mid-April, the amount of phone calls and texts and office visits I received nearly tripled. Now, I don't want you to take that as stop bothering me. I love being bothered for ministry. The point was is that during that time, I had to keep reminding myself that I could only do my best, and whatever shortcoming was revealed was not eternally significant because I am eternally secure. And I know many of you have had to deal with a great deal of decision-making. Do I go here? Do I stay home? Should I go back to school? Should I take the job? And the doctrine of eternal security means that none of those decisions will ever change eternity. They will never put separation or space between you and God. It will not change how he feels about you. In fact, let me say it, very, uh, say it this way. It's actually very much the opposite. It is your struggle in these times that actually increases his compassion for you. And so we can look and we can say death really isn't our problem. And so in a time when many want to speculate about whether or not we're in the end times, we need to remember that our hope is a person, not an event, not even life after death. It is, our hope is Jesus. At a time when we're reminded daily of the mortality and we need reminders, in a time when we are daily reminded of mortality, we need reminders of our resurrection. In a time when there's so much confusion and debate, let us remember, if anything, The thing that we want to fear, that being death, is actually not our problem. Really what we need to remember is that it's all about Jesus. And that because of him we have both life before death and life after death. Let's pray. Father, pray by your grace and mercy, justice has been done to your text. Let us remember that Jesus is our hope. The resurrection is our future, and death is not our problem. And I pray, Father, the wisdom of your word would guide us as we face whatever we face day to day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.